What up, everybody? Just a little reminder that the St. Dymphna's Playbook book is available wherever you get your books and ebooks. You can head on over to Ave Maria Press's website and use the code BEWELL, all one word, to get 20% off. Go get your copy now. St. Martin de Porras once said, Everything, even sweeping, scraping vegetables, weeding a garden, and waiting on the sick could be a prayer if it were offered to God. Welcome to the 125th episode of St. Dymphna's Playbook, the SDP, if you want to be cool, a production of the Grexley Podcast Network. My name is Tommy. I'm a cradle Catholic, a marriage and family therapist, a husband and father of five boys, four on earth, and one in heaven. I love you, Luke. And I'm here to fill the void of Catholic conversations about mental health because I want us all to realize that making the effort to walk alongside someone who is suffering can end up being the most powerful prayer we'll ever make to God. We like to kick it off around here with a quick refresh of our notifications. It's time for St. Dymphna's Mentions. One of the positives to come out of the pandemic has been mental health treatment becoming more accessible in a variety of ways. And one of the biggest changes uh, is mental health apps that are now available to get people connected to care. As we've discussed in the past, however, the rise of tech within mental health does come with some concerns. We start with Axios for context, the same pandemic-driven boom in mental health and wellness apps that helped ease two years of COVID-driven discontent is now raising alarms over privacy, efficacy, and a blurring of the line between former medical treatment and general self-care. Online services for mental health have given more people easy access than ever uh, before, and the sector is booming with investment. But not every mental health problem can be solved with an app, and consumers are confused by the range of options available. Faced with advertising for apps that can sometimes conflate serious mental health issues with vague well-being concerns. Experts who spoke to Axios said mental health apps fall into two camps, those that connect patients to clinicians and those that don't, instead offering chatbots, mood trackers, and guided breathing exercises. And privacy policies uh, for mental health apps are all over the place. A 2018 study published in the journal Internet Interventions found that fewer than half of the 116 apps for depression surveyed had any privacy policy. In 2021, Consumer Reports found that some popular mental health apps were sharing data with Meta and other companies and tracking for targeted advertising. In an ideal world where everyone has resources and time for traditional therapy, mental health apps may best be viewed as a supplement, not a panacea. So back to me. I think it's wonderful that there are options for people seeking mental health services these days, but as many people are finding out, telehealth services through an app don't always take the place of traditional in-person work, and sometimes it can cost a whole lot more than going through our private insurance or Medi-Cal or local county mental health services. Seeing these apps as a supplement seems like the best approach, and hopefully as they continue to be utilized, they will continue to develop into more solid treatment options uh, for folks with an assurance of privacy built in. So each episode, I'm going to introduce you to a saint who can help us along our journey with mental health and wellness as Catholics. It's called Friend Request. And today, I'm going to introduce you to Blessed Michael Gidroik. (laughs) 
I'm so sorry for that pronunciation, blessed Michael. Born in 1425 in Lithuania, Michael was part of a second generation to be baptized in his family. According to Wikipedia, a childhood accident left one of his feet paralyzed and he had to use crutches. Later examination of his remains revealed his le- one of his legs was much shorter than the other. His disability likely influenced his later hermit tendencies and his devotion to crucified Christ. He did not want to be a burden and wanted to serve others, and therefore he started making boxes, most likely from wood, for the Eucharist that could be brought to the sick in their homes. Back to me. He joined the canon regulars of the Augustinians, and according to Franciscan media, he received permission to live the life of a hermit in a cell adjoining the monastery. There, Michael spent his days in prayer, fasting, and abstaining from all meat, and lived to a very old age. Though he knew the meaning of suffering throughout his years, his rich spiritual life brought him consolation. So uh, again, back to me, he died in 1485 and is another example of a soon-to-be saint we can look to as someone who understands our suffering, understands our pain, and can intercede for us before the throne of God to help us along our own journey. We like to close out this part of the podcast with a prayer. Please watch over all those with physical and mental disabilities, blessed Michael. May they take strength in your example to persevere through their difficulties. May we who are blessed with good health come to assist these individuals and act as Christ's light to them. Amen. And now you can't do therapy over Twitter, but I'm happy to take your tweets and help you explore a bit in the hopes of finding a light in the darkness. It's time for Twitter therapy. Anonymous gets us started. How do we reconcile the difference between spirituality and mental health? As in, how can we pray to and be spiritual, but not spiritualize mental illness? My husband is really struggling with this right now and drifting from the faith because of it, and I don't know how to help. He found great relief through medication, but resents prayer because he prayed for a long time for relief and feels that it was the medication, not God, and spiritual practices that helped him. Well, let's start by joining in prayer for Anonymous for a reconciliation between the spiritual and the practical when it comes to our mental health journey, and for peace in the face of feeling frustrated with God's seeming silence. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. Thank you so much for this important question. First, I want to say that I understand where your husband is coming from, and I think a lot of us do. So many of us have prayed for help, prayed for healing, prayed for support, and are left wondering, where's the help, healing, and support that we so desperately need? It's no wonder we get angry at God from time to time and resent him for not listening to our heartfelt prayers. We talk a lot on this podcast about the importance of not over-spiritualizing one's mental health. And the reason we emphasize this is because most of us have come to realize that God doesn't typically give us a miracle. Something where we're feeling depressed or having panic attacks and then we pray and all of a sudden we wake up and feel better. Thank you, Jesus. While that can happen, it isn't God's normal mode of operating. Instead, God answers our prayers for healing for our mental health symptoms through the people God puts in our path, family, friends, helping professionals like therapists and doctors. And God answers our prayers by helping us find the right medication to bring us relief. So while I relate to your husband's feelings towards prayer, and I absolutely understand it, I do think it's important to shift how we think about 
our prayers, uh, what they do, and how they may be answered. Perhaps all of that praying that felt like a waste was actually the very mechanism by which your husband came across a helping professional who helped partner with your husband to find the right medication to get him some relief. I hope that helps. And please be sure to let your husband know that we all struggle with our faith at different times throughout our lives, especially in times uh, that, like the ones that he's had to walk through, and, and let him know that we'll keep praying for him. Sarah is up next. How should Catholics with mental health struggles approach things like Exodus 90 and other aesthetic practices? A priest was telling us about how intense E90 is last night after the Easter vigil, and my husband and I were thinking how if we tried it, we'd probably have a mental breakdown. Me too, I think. How can Catholics with anxiety or OCD approach aesthetic practices in terms of growing in holiness and finding closeness to God in other ways and not feeling inadequacy or guilt about it? Well, let's start by praying for Sarah and everyone trying to grow in holiness while also living with mental health symptoms that God may provide the clear path forward in a way that is comfortable and peaceful. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, mother of God, pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death. Amen. It's so great that you're thinking about these things, Sarah. I think too often we get carried away by whatever the popular spiritual thing to do at the time is, and we don't think about the impact it might have on us. So you're certainly one step ahead. We've had a few people reach out to talk about how to delve into memento mori while experiencing suicidal ideation, for example, or others who have asked about feeling guilty for having a hard time with the rosary or devotion to the Blessed Mother in general due to a difficult past relationship with their own mom, or still others who have a history of walking through the experience of having an eating disorder and then find themselves wondering how to participate in the season of Lent with all its fasting. And at the end of the day, it comes down to this. God knows us. He understands us better than we understand ourselves, and God is practical. He doesn't expect us to do things that aren't right for us, and any spiritual practice that increases our anxiety or depression or guilt or symptoms associated with trauma or just make us feel worse, generally speaking, aren't the right spiritual practices for us. And thanks be to God, the Catholic faith has a treasure trove of spiritual practices, so if we search, we're likely to find some that match with our personality while also keeping us feeling safe and comfortable and at peace exactly like God wants for us. We can take the time to ask ourselves some questions about spiritual practices as we consider them in our life. Does the thought of this practice trigger my anxiety or depression in some way, for example? We have to be honest with ourselves and be okay with the answers. So for those of us who experience anxiety or OCD or scrupulosity, for example, these aesthetic practices might not be the best thing for us, but that's okay. We have to remind ourselves that it's just okay. God loves us. He knows us. And he wants to come to us in a way that we can accept him. Anonymous wraps us up. Did I cause my daughter's oppositional defiant disorder? Some materials say it's chemical and some say it's environmental. She's on medication and going to therapy. So we have those bases covered, but I'm struggling with guilt that I may have caused the issue in the first place. Please let's join together in praying for Anonymous, for her daughter and her entire family, and for peace in all the hearts of all the parents who have ever asked themselves a question like this. Remember, O most gracious Virgin Mary, that never was it known that anyone who fled to thy protection, implored thy help, or sought thine intercession was left unaided. Inspired by this confidence, I fly unto thee, O Virgin of virgins, my mother. To thee do I come, before thee I stand, sinful and sorrowful. 
O mother of the word incarnate, despise not my petitions, but in thy mercy, hear and answer me. Amen. Thank you so much for this question and know that I wish I could reach out and give you a hug right now, but I guess this podcast will have to be my virtual hug and I hope it helps. Let's start with definitions. We'll go with WebMD to help us out. Oppositional Defiant Disorder or ODD is a behavior disorder in which a child displays a pattern of angry or cranky mood, defiant or combative behavior, and vindictiveness towards people in authority. The child's behavior often disrupts their daily routine, including activities within the family and at school. Estimates suggest that 2 to 16% of children and teens have ODD. Symptoms of ODD may include throwing repeated temper tantrums, excessively arguing with adults, especially those in authority, actively refusing to comply with requests and rules, trying to annoy or upset others, or being easily annoyed by others, blaming others for your mistakes, having frequent outbursts of anger and resentment, being spiteful and seeking revenge, swearing and using obscene language, and saying mean and hateful things when upset. Back to me for a sec. In relation to your concerns about causing your daughter's ODD, in the old days, psychology used to assume that mental illness was caused by the parents' way of relating to children. They used to blame schizophrenia on mothers and call them schizophrenic mothers, for example. But we found that the reality is far more complicated as you've seen looking into it. I can relate to your thoughts and feelings 100%. I still spend time thinking about how I caused my son Luke's death because it was my DNA that left him in the situation he was in. That might sound ridiculous, and it really only causes me more pain, but I think it's a normal human parenting reaction to think the hard things our kids face are somehow things that we could have prevented. I think genetics plays a way bigger role than we like to admit, mostly because we like to have a sense of control over our lives, and I think we see this in the way our kids have such drastically different personalities, even though they have the same environment at home. And our genetic makeup seems to lead us to have different outcomes after the same experiences when compared to others, even within our own families. We see this with kids who've experienced abuse. Some end up with average outcomes in life, while others might experience PTSD, substance abuse issues, etc. Let's go back to WebMD for more on the cause of ODD as we understand it. The exact cause of ODD is not known, but a combination of biological, genetic, and environmental factors may contribute to the condition. First, brain chemistry. ODD has been linked to certain types of brain chemicals or neurotransmitters that don't work the right way. Neurotransmitters help nerve cells in the brain communicate with each other. If these chemicals are not working properly, messages may not make it through the brain correctly, leading to symptoms of ODD and other mental illnesses. Further, many children and teens with ODD also have other mental illnesses such as ADHD, learning disorders, depression, anxiety, which may contribute to their behavior problems. Next, other brain differences. Some studies suggest that defects in or injuries to certain areas in the brain can lead to serious behavior problem in children. Next, temperament. Kids who have trouble controlling their emotions are more likely to have ODD. Fourth, family history. Many children and teens with ODD have close family members with mental illnesses, including mood disorders, anxiety disorders, personality disorders, and this suggests that a risk of getting ODD may be inherited. Next, peers. Attention from peers or others may sometimes reinforce ODD behaviors. And last, family issues. Things like dysfunctional family life, substance abuse, or inconsistent discipline by parents or other authority figures may add to the development 
of behavior disorder. So back to me. I put the emphasis on the may add part of the family issues because I think it's so vital. It means that the research suggests that family issues cannot cause ODD, but rather can add to the development of such disorders if they are already present thanks to the other potential causes. Before wrapping up, I just wanted to share some quick thoughts from AMI Quebec on working through these feelings that we experience in this situation. If you are a parent of someone with a mental illness and have feelings of guilt, it is important to be compassionate with yourself. Know that you are strong and are doing the best you can with the resources you have. Remind yourself that you are doing everything you can that is in your control. When these guilty feelings and guilty thoughts invade your mind, remember to practice self-care. Engaging in the coping skills you know will help you and the ones that have helped you in the past and the ones that feel right. And back to me, remember to practice these skills in times when you're feeling better so that they'll be easier to engage in when things get tough. And please, please know that we'll be praying for you and your daughter and your family and know that this little community is here for you whenever you need it. All right, everyone, that's it for today's episode. Remember, you can email, DM, or tweet your questions and situations if you'd like me to address them in a future episode. I'd be happy to keep you anonymous or not, whatever you want. Be sure to check out patreon.com slash grexley to see all the great things they've got going on over there and support the cause. And until next time, go easy on yourselves. Take care of yourselves. And if you feel like you're in a place where you can't even bring yourself to pray, don't worry. I'll be praying for you. And so will St. Dymphna. (laughs) 